0: New Street X is a podcast where we talk to the most interesting people in the collectible space across sneakers, sports, trading cards, NFTs, fashion, art, and more. Today, we have Josh Luber, the co-founder and former CEO of StockX, the world's largest marketplace for sneakers and streetwear, and currently the co-founder and chief vision officer of Fanatics Trading Cards. Josh has been one of the most influential people in sneaker culture over the last few years and is now helping to find the vision for the future of trading cards. We talked about his journey from Campless to StockX to Fanatics, his sneaker collection from wanting Jordan 5 grapes as a kid to receiving Jordan 4 Carhartts from Eminem, his favorite sports cards, non-sports cards of people like Jimi Hendrix and Kim Kardashian. We talked about Josh's 50-page white paper on the card industry called Trading Cards Are Cool Again, the opportunity for cards to outgrow the sneaker industry, NFTs, the growth of alternative assets, and much more. No, thanks for
1: having me. This was fun.
0: Awesome, awesome. Now, Josh, I mean, you've done a lot of really, really interesting things, and I love if we can maybe take a step back and hear your story about how you started Campless specifically and then moving on to StockX and Fanatics and, and what you're doing now. I'd love to hear that story.
1: Yeah, no, for sure. Um, so so I'm an entrepreneur. I've started five or six businesses <clears throat> at this time, um, and I shut down my last company. or the company before Campless. Um, right in the crash of 08, 09. And I was living in Atlanta and I took a job at IBM, which I never thought I would do in a, in a million years. Um, but it was the worst job market of, of my life, of, of any of our lives at that point. And uh, so I moved to New York. I start working at IBM as a strategy consultant. And, um, and if you're a startup guy and you go work at IBM, the first thing you do is you start working on shit on the side. So as a consultant, I'm knee deep in, in data and Excel and modeling and like any other, uh, strategy consultant. And this is 2010 and, um, or like kind of the end of 2010. And as I'm working through that, uh, you know, over the next year and I'm working on random side projects, you get to about a year later in the end of 2011 is when, um, historically we can look back and see, what was the start of the sneaker industry becoming what it is. You had the the um, Jordan 11 Concord drop in Christmas, and then February of 2012, you have the, the Galaxy Foam uh, All-Star Weekend Pack, which was just um, uh, another level. You have riots, and you have articles writing stories about riots, and you just have a different level of, of, uh, of, of craziness in the sneaker industry. And I've collected sneakers all my life. I mean, I, I literally have shoes from when I was in you know, in middle school. And um, and so I never brought those two together. I never, you know, I, in fact, I'd almost intentionally avoided creating any businesses in the sneaker space because I was so personally invested in speakers and sneakers and it was my, you know, sort of probably biggest personal passion and personal, um, uh, you know, use of, of money. And so I didn't want to create a business that was just an excuse to play with sneakers. And so I almost intentionally separated those two in my life. So, but I'm at IBM. The sneaker industry is going through this this massive um, uh, like explosion and and becoming much more relevant to mainstream. And I swear to God, in something like out of a movie, I'm sitting in in the back of uh, of a a office in a pitch to the CEO of IBM, and I was working for the CMO of IBM, and. Uh, and to be clear, I wasn't presenting. They don't let people like me present to the CEO of IBM. But I was in the back of the room and and kind of just trying to keep myself awake and deep in data. And I like scribbled on a piece of paper something like, "Is uh, is my future in data?" Right? Wow. Uh, I like I really remember doing this. And I went back that night and and I started talking to my former startup partner from my previous companies. It was and I said, "Hey." I was like, can we get a hold of eBay data? I was like, all sneaker sales are on eBay. I was like, can we get a hold of eBay sneaker sales? I want to figure out, I basically want to try to build a price guide for sneakers because as the industry was growing and um, there was no real data and analytics platform to do that, everybody would reference Flight Club um, and Flight Club historical sales for whatever the value of a sneaker should be. But if you knew... And if you know, you know that Flight Club was, was massively overpriced compared to what you could get in the industry. Flight Club is a different business model. It's consignment. It's got a physical store. And so it was this idea, can I get a hold of some sneaker data just to play with, just to kind of see what I could do with it. And so we figured out how to collect eBay sneaker sales data. We figured out how to clean it and turn it into um, usable data. And I, I built a, uh, a price guide for the sneaker industry that Uh, we called Campless. And it was called Campless because I thought it was very, I thought it was very witty. Uh, You know, the tagline was no more camp less, right? Because the idea that people camp outside for sneakers, what it really was doing was there was no shortage of sneaker blogs and businesses that had the word sneaker kick soul. And it It was like, you know, uh, soul collector kicks on fire, nice kicks, you know, all that. So I was like, look, from a brand standpoint, we just have to either build a brand around a unique name or not, but we're not going to try to cut through the clutter and, and call it like sneaker price guide or something like that. So, But it was a side project. It was purely a side project. And what happened was, and this is kind of the key to, to I, I think probably everything, was we did all this data work, we built a price guide, we published the data, we published the, all the numbers, and then it was just like silence because Anybody could put a bunch of numbers onto a, onto a spreadsheet and post them. Anyone could put a bunch of numbers on a website. So it was like, well, okay, I have no credibility. I'm nobody in the industry. Nobody knows me, and we're just putting numbers on a random site and telling people this is what sneakers should cost. Like, who cares? So we said, you know what? We need to essentially show people all the work that's going into this. So we started a blog for Campless that was kind of like Freakonomics for sneakers where we would do these deep analytics around sneakers and, and try to you know, essentially make the data more interesting. Most importantly, show the people the depth of the work that was going into the analytics to validate that, hey, there's a reason that you should believe that this number is right, that this is the value of this pair of, of sneakers. And that blog post became, that blog became super popular to that very small overlap between sneakerheads and and data nerds, right? Like that small Venn diagram overlap, like hit them overhead, uh, like with a hammer. And all of a sudden, I started to get people coming out of the woodwork, emailing me, DMing me on Twitter, you know, saying, hey, I, I love sneakers. I love data. Can I help? And I was massively taken back by this because, first of all, I wasn't like trying to hire anyone. There was no money in it. There was no business here. It was just me messing around with some data with a friend. And, but I was like, yeah, sure. Like, I'd love to have some help. And so, over the next couple of years, we actually built this volunteer army. There were 17 people that worked for the company. And I'm using air quotes for that. Um, And there was no money, there was no equity, there was no contracts. It was just, all people that either love sneakers or love data and just wanted to build this unique thing that didn't exist in the world. But as we were building that, the question was, okay, there's real there's real value here. People are using it and there's some opportunity. What it did was for me, it opened up all these doors to have conversations with everyone else in the sneaker industry, who again, like I've never worked in the sneaker industry, so they didn't know me from from anybody but having conversations with Nike and eBay and Foot Locker and, and complex and Flight Club and all these people trying to figure out how can I work with them and for me it was like essentially how do I leave IBM how do I how do I do this full-time in some way do I start the company do I raise money do I sell this to one of the companies do I just use it to get myself a job and I talked to all the people that, that I just named and, and many more everyone you could think of in, in the sneaker industry and there was never really just a good fit. There was never a good, you know, meet, you know, between who to work with, for this little data company I had and, and the companies that are out there. But um, the the uh, I get a an email from a couple guys um, on the Wednesday before Easter of 2015. So I've been basically grinding on this thing for like two and a half years, um, and. At this point, you know, it was a nights and weekends thing. And, and I, I honestly, at this point, I kind of felt like nothing was really going to happen. Um, and I get this random email from these guys and they say, Hey, we work with Dan Gilbert. Dan Gilbert is the owner of the Cleveland Cavaliers and Quicken Loans and, frankly, most of the city of Detroit. And they say, Hey, we work with Dan Gilbert. Really interested in what you're doing. Can we talk? Well, at this point, I've talked to so many people. Every conversation has, has gone nowhere. So I didn't think anything of it. But like, sure, right? You take any phone call. So I get on the phone with these guys. And um, again, it's a, it's a Wednesday before Easter of 2015. I get on the phone with these guys. And it's like, honestly, it was, I, don't, I don't even remember the conversation. It was like every other conversation I had. It could have been whatever. I don't even remember it. Um, and, uh, and I didn't think anything of it. And hung up the phone and, and went our way. Uh, two days later, Friday before Easter, I get an email from these guys and say, "Listen, we we love what you're doing. We absolutely want to work together. We definitely want to do this business. We'd like to fly you to Cleveland to go to a game and meet Dan." Well, first half of the statement is like, well, "Whatever," everybody says they're going to do shit, right? The second half, I'm like, "Absolutely, you can fly me to a game. Like, I'm a huge NBA fan. Like, I thought that was like, I thought that was all that was going to come out of this." So they're like, "Well, at short notice. Could you come on on Easter Sunday?" And I was like, I'm Jewish, absolutely. Like, let's make this thing happen. So the one caveat was my wife was actually 39 weeks pregnant with our okay. second child. So the plan was flying in the morning. It was a 3 p.m. game, Easter Sunday, Cavs-Bulls, mm-hmm. 2015. So I fly in the morning. The plan was fly in the morning, go to the game, and fly right back home that night. So we get there. We kind of make small talk during the game. And after the game, uh, we, got, we go back to this private owner's room, and it's Dan, and it's two guys and me. And I give all the background of me and Campus and IBM and all that. And then I take out this one piece of paper, the same piece of paper that I used to take to all these meetings, Nike, eBay, Foot Locker. And it was very simple. There's only three things on this piece of paper. The first was a price guide. That's what Campus was. Campus was a sneaker price guide. The second was sneaker portfolios. The idea that if you know the value of one pair of sneakers, you can very easily figure out create a sneaker portfolio. Look at your entire sneaker collection the same way you look at a sneaker portfolio, a stock portfolio. And then the logic was well, if you understood asset pricing, if you understood portfolio construction, then you could actually create a stock market for sneakers. And so that was it. It was price guide portfolio stock market for sneakers. And I take that meeting, take that piece of paper, all these meetings, Nike, eBay, and everybody said, well, that's pretty cool, but what we want to do is this, and we want to take your data and do X, Y, and Z in our business. And fair enough, I didn't think Nike or eBay was gonna change what they're doing and build a a stock market for sneakers with me. But I share it with Dan and his guys, and they look at me with pure shock, and it doesn't really register why, and then one of them takes out a piece of paper and is like, yeah, we have one of these, we have one of those, that is exactly what we want to build, a stock market for sneakers. And I was like, oh. So, like, the crazy backstory of this whole thing is that there was maybe one other person in the whole world that wanted to do the exact same thing at the exact same time and happens to be one of the most successful people in the world, right? Like, what the fuck? It's so crazy for so many reasons because Dan's got no ties to sneakers whatsoever, right? I mean, it's been six years now and literally we can't even get him to wear sneakers. Yeah. But Dan had this much bigger idea around a stock market of things, this idea that you could apply the way the stock market works to anything. You could sell any consumer good that same way. And then he saw his, his, at the time, 15-year-old son buying and selling sneakers on eBay like every other 15-year-old kid and said, you know what? That's a pretty crappy market leader, eBay. That'd be a perfect place to start a stock market for commerce. And so he goes out and he puts together a team to start working on this idea these guys get like a week into it, a month into it and realize, well, crap, we need a sneaker guy, right? Who's the sneaker guy that's going to help us run the sneaker stock market? So they go out, they do some research, they find campus, they find me. Turns out the sneaker guy is also trying to build a sneaker stock market. It's also run, you know, five other startups and IBM and, and you know. So it was this crazy serendipity of like everything they were looking for, and everything I was looking for. And all this is happening in the locker room at the Cavs game yeah. on Easter Sunday. So at this point, Dan's like, we got to come back to Detroit to see everyone and meet everything. And I, it was Sunday. I was like, oh, well, my, my week's pretty light this week. I'm sure I could go whenever. So his assistant takes out his phone. He's like, Dan, have some time on like Tuesday or Wednesday. Dan's like, put that away. Josh, why don't you come back with us right now? I was like, uh, uh, okay. So like, I, I text IBM, not showing up at work tomorrow. Sorry. Text my wife. I'm like, not coming home. You know, please don't go into labor. Don't kill me. Right. Um, so we fly from Cleveland to Detroit, spent all day in Detroit, tour of the city, tour of the different businesses, all the people that work with Dan Monday afternoon in Dan's office. And he's like, Hey, listen, uh, we think oh, we'd really love you to stay another day to keep talking. And I'm like, yeah, sure. Why not? Text IBM, not showing sure work, text my wife, please don't kill me. Like I, I literally wore the same clothes for three days in a row. Finally, end of the day, Tuesday, back in Dan's office, he says, look, we think this is perfect. We want to buy campus. We want you to come here and run the company. And they finally let me go home. I get home. It's like 1 a.m. on Tuesday night. I walk in the door. Thank God my wife I hadn't gone into labor. And I, I, I walk in. I was like, I was like, I think we're moving to Detroit. And she's like, what the hell? I thought you went to Cleveland. Yeah. <laughs> so that's the short version of what was okay. a, a very long uh, lead up of a couple of years of me working on this thing on the side. Basically getting to the last possible you know, person to work with. Uh, finding the perfect partner in Dan, moving to Detroit to, to start StockX. And obviously people are probably more familiar with StockX than than the backstory and campus. But like, there's so much in there that first of all became unbelievably uh, serendipitous. And also um, as I'm now in the trading card industry and just went through the essentially the same year uh, like five years later in terms of how I ended up working with Michael Rubin and, and Fanatics and creating the business I did. There's a lot of, 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 of uh, similarities, which we can talk about later. But, you know, that was really the changing from me from being, you know, just a sort of struggling entrepreneur and that, that nobody knew to, to being in the position that because of Dan, because of the MBA, because of, of sneakers and the, then the success of, of StockX and where those products that we sold fit into culture, for me to to become somebody that you would want to interview on the podcast it's it's a really extraordinary thing, but it's really around around campus and that was that was where this thing started so
0: yeah and, and I think that's why I love including the campus part of the story because that's something that people don't they don't really know as much but the data the sort of grinding how that attracted you to someone like dan that's like such a critical part of it that might not sound as sexy as stockx, but it's like how it all kind of started it
1: and is it I, couldn't but, be less sexy I spent eighteen yeah. months all I did was clean data. data. All I did was clean Excel data. I would write queries to essentially, you know, take the cause you would have these sneaker listings on eBay and it would say like Air Jordan 6, you know, Carmine, but then it would say like, you know, Kobe, Shaq, LeBron, Yeezy, you know, like are these all the keywords, all these other things in it. So the data was very, very messy. So it was hard to identify what shoe was actually being sold in any auction. And so I had never even i writ- never even heard of writing queries before so i taught myself how to write queries and taught myself how to clean the data and then for basically 18 months that's all i did was trying to do that because i knew that all i knew was that i, I couldn't build a price guide if i didn't have clean data and nobody else was going to do this and I, like i could hire someone else to do this so that was it and and i learned like i already knew a lot about sneakers but i learned everything i could possibly ever know because you know you're you're deep in it all day but like it couldn't be Less sexy. And there couldn't have been less of a, oh, you know what, like one day there will be a billion dollar company here. Like, pff, get out of here. Like, there's none of that.
0: Yeah, you trust the process at that point. I mean, exactly. Right. Like, so I'm moving on to the fanatics aspect. Um, How, like briefly, can you touch on that and how, you know, after your tenure as CEO of StockX for several years now, StockX is worth several billion dollars, probably IPO soon. Uh, How did you end up meeting, like, Michael? Was it the same situation? Did he bring you to a game? And then you also had a negotiation over there. Was it something similar, something different?
1: Almost uh, almost the same. (laughs) So Michael and I had had met in passing a few times um, just from me being around Dan and and the NBA and and StockX, but we didn't know each other well. Um, You know, we're running StockX, and um, I was just a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of getting back into trading cards because at StockX we were always looking for what other products might make sense to put on the site. Obviously you started with sneakers, expanded into streetwear, watches, handbags, collectibles, toys, et cetera. And so the end of 2018, um, I started to notice trading cards becoming a, a, a thing again, uh, being a big category in eBay and uh, started to kind of explore that. I ended up you know, adding trading cards to StockX. I started collecting cards again myself I had the same story as every other forty-three-year-old, you know, revived card collector. I collected in, in the '80s and '90s as a kid. You know, I left all my cards in my parents' basement when I went away to college. They've been sitting there for the past, you know, two decades. Um, and so, as I was getting deeper and deeper into cards, um, I started to realize that, first of all, where the trading card industry is going, and and the the opportunity of of where um, it would it would go, because it was a lot of people like me coming back into the industry. But also that trading cards were this more perfect product for the vision that I had originally had around stock X, which is that there's some group of consumer goods that are equal parts, consumer good and financial asset, and that those products shouldn't be treated the same way a normal CPG, you know, product is, right? Like and it's around pricing. It's the idea that there, if you have products that are truly supply and demand constrained like sneakers like trading cards that you should let supply and demand you should let the market set the price for those you shouldn't have a retail price for those products and i spent years at 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 stockx trying to talk to nike and adidas and the other brands that that products that we sold on the secondary market to try to get them to release products Directly into stock X, directly into the, the secondary market by using different forms of, of market based pricing of letting supply and demand set the pricing. But for a lot of reasons, um, you know, you, you're not going to get Nike to get rid of retail pricing, right? Like that's just a, a crazy, you know, um, uh, idea. But the vision was right, and the idea was right, and we did a couple. Um, launches that we called an IPO or initial product offering, where we would let the market set the price. We use what's called a blind Dutch auction. And we can go into the details of that if you want. But essentially, the idea was that trading cards were a more perfect product for that. And so um, between the opportunity in the card space and the idea that the real vision that I had, had created in StockX was actually better for trading cards... Um, it took me a while to realize that just because I started the company doesn't mean that I that I had to stay. But so I, I eventually I left StockX in September of 20, with the express purpose of trying to get into the primary sneak a trading card market to move into. And that, that's either to so either buy Topps or Panini to acquire the licenses to work with them in some way. And what had happened was that Around the same time that I was doing this, and I was having a lot of conversation with a lot of people in the trading card industry, and kind of sharing my vision and 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 what I wanted to do to try to find the right partners to work with, Michael at the same time had been getting more and more tuned into trading cards from his point of view at Fanatics. Fanatics, obviously, is you know uh, the leader for uh, licensed uh, apparel and headwear for all the major sports leagues. So he asked the question: well, "Hold on, there's a." A league licensed product, trading cards that we're not in, why are we not in it? And just kind of generally looking for it. And so as he kept asking around about trading cards, a lot of people were saying, Well, if you're interested in trading cards, you should talk to Josh. He's got an interesting point More of view. Serendipity. Yeah. yeah, exactly. And yeah. you know, um, even though we knew each other, I think it was actually, you know, it was actually Gary V who put us back together and said, You guys need to talk, because we both know Gary well. And he's like, You guys both need to talk, you're sort of on the same path. I gave him the short version via phone call, and he's like, "I got to come out and sit with you." And so, on the on the Tuesday before Thanksgiving last year, uh, Michael flew to Detroit. We rented like a, a hotel suite, um, and we spent five and a half hours just talking about trading cards—just me and him, no one else in the room. And um, and he was like, "I'm with you." He's like, "I," he's like, "I," and I was like, "Look, I was like, if we can get the licenses." I was like, we can change this industry. It should be run like this. It should be run using supply and demand and market-based price, and all this. And he's like, well, I-, I can get the licenses. He's like, that's what Fanatics is. Those are, our, those are my relationship with all the people we've been doing that. And so we left that room with a, you know, with a plan to, to try to do that. And we spent the last nine, 10 months very quietly going league to league, PA to PA, having those meetings, selling them on the vision. And I like to think that you know I was at least a part of that. But like truly, like his relationship with those people and and the the credibility of fanatics with the leagues and PA's was was I you know we couldn't have done it w- without them, and um, you know and we were able to to acquire you know the licenses and be in a position where we will now um, control bat- baseball, basketball, football, and make uh, make trading cards. And it doesn't mean that everything is market-based pricing. It doesn't mean everything is an IPO. But the philosophy of transparency and supply and demand to use that to change the way the trading card industry operates. To 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 use technology to to create real direct-to-consumer e-commerce companies. Um, and, um, and 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 truly really do that. Like this is literally the same vision from twenty, you know, twelve you know, around campus, which is, you know, can we, what is the fair price for a pair of sneakers and why don't people know that? Like there should just be transparency around pricing. It's, it's literally the same vision that's been refined. And now having it be on the primary side, having control of the licenses and having the support of Michael and Fanatics and, and everybody over there, you know, we've created a separate company. It is a separate uh, legal entity, separate business. that is majority owned by Fanatics and the leagues and PAs are also our equity partners in the business. That we now get to go and, and do that as we as those licenses come up and as we take control and, and operate those businesses, but it's um there's so much serendipity in you know billionaire MBA owners and and this very like crazy way that we came together. Um, one of my friends likes to point out, uh, sort of like to to my own horn a little bit. He's like, you know, five years ago you flew to Cleveland to meet Dan. Five years later, Ruben's flying to Detroit yeah. to see you, and I'm like, yeah. I mean so anyway it, it, was, it was all pretty pretty crazy um but uh but it's great and and Ruben's great and um I've been unbelievably impressed with them way more than I ever thought I would be outside looking in and uh it, it's been great but it's just the beginning it's just the yeah beginning.
0: oh we're so excited to see what you guys do and, and like I'm very much encouraged by like the romantic serendipity of what your life has been how close you've been to all these different things, right. like sneakers, like cards, culture at the forefront of all this. I mean, I'd love to they move on to hearing about maybe like a younger Josh. Like how did you get into sneakers back in the day? Like first sneakers, then cards and stuff. I, I would imagine maybe there's like a classic story about wanting Air Jordans as a kid, they're a bit more expensive than than your your mom would have been happy to to buy. But, yeah, I just love to hear the story about how do you get into sneakers back in the day? Like, what was that beginning?
1: Yeah, we, we all have the exact same story, which exactly. is that, like, I grew up when Jordan played. I always wanted a pair of Air Jordans. My mother would never buy Air Jordans. As soon as I got some money, I bought Air Jordans. Like, we all have literally the exact same story. Um, for me, it was, uh, you know, I used to go to this this, like, overnight camp, and there was a kid who had the Jordan 5 grape. All right and I like you we'd seen when the first Jordan came out and I was like there's air in a shoe and then the, you know the 3 the air bubble and I was like intrigued but like it was such a it was so much more expensive than than other shoes and it was so much like I never even thought I could possibly get a pair and then like seeing the Jordan 5 grape and seeing this kid wearing this shoe that had teal and purple on it and it was an Air Jordan and it was just like like I I can still see where I saw the kid step for the first time, you know, like all these years later. And um, that was like the start of like the absolute like obsession of like, and then, you know, every Nike ad every time I go into a, you know, a sneaker store, you'd be in the mall and be like, hold on, I got to go look in here and, and see what the shoes are, even though there's no chance I was I was getting a pair. um, And, and just being obsessed about all of that. It was also, you know, we were all in the midst of like the golden age of Nike basketball advertising, right? Like with Mars Blackman and, and Mr. Robinson's Neighborhood and, and, you know, Charles Barkley, and I'm not a role model. And like all those, and all those posters, like, and, and so, you know, I'm, you know, there's two types of people, right? There's collectors and there's not collectors and, and most people collect something. And then there's like, you know, us that are just absolute like, you know, hoarders and and at a collect like collector level. And so I, I always collected something and, Trading cards were the, were the earliest. I was in the trading cards way before sneakers because trading cards were accessible and I could I could buy cards and I could you know, um, uh, but you know and then sneakers were more expensive. I couldn't buy them myself. There was a there was a different there was a different disconnect. But you know, my room was was full of posters, and it was obsessive. Like I would not only have posters, but then I would I would put Sports Illustrated covers on my ceiling, and I would cut out pictures from each Sports Illustrated and filled every single like white space in the entire entire room. So it was you could not see the wall anywhere in the entire room. Every single space was cut out with, with something, um, and it was all sports. You know, um, and it was obviously a lot of Nike posters and a lot of uh, of, of stuff like that. Um, so yeah, so for me, it was always that. And then, um, you know, I graduated college in 99, uh, you know, summer or whatever it is, you know, May of 99. And then that, uh, that winter was, um, Concord 11. Uh, and so I'd been working for six months. I worked at this furniture store. Um, I'd been working for six months. The Jordan 11 Concord came out. I went to the mall. I lived in Atlanta. I went to the mall probably about two months after the shoe came out, which is crazy to think about today. But I go to the mall and I walk into the store and like I'd saved up money. I'd sort of put aside enough to, to go and buy this, um, to go buy the, the, buy the Jordan Concords. Like I knew that's what I wanted. I, I, I played basketball all my life. So I would play pickup basketball, you know, two, three times a week, play in, in different rec leagues. And so, and I never wore Jordans on the court because frankly, I was never good enough. Like back then, if you, you know, if you were a a slow, short white guy and you were wearing Jordans, you would just put a target on your back, right? So, like, you don't wear Jordans on the court. Um, But I was now in this rec league. I was one of the better players. And I'm like, I'm going to buy Jordans. I have the money and I'm going to wear them on the court. And so I go into this, this like foot locker, foot action, one of those like little ones, not foot locker. And there's a pair of Concord 11s on the wall. And I was like, those. I want those. And then the guy, there's two guys in the store. There's no one else in the store. I remember this vividly. There's no one else in the store. And I was like, I those ten and a half. And the two guys, they, they look at each other. They look at me. They look at each other. They look at me. And I'm like, what? And like, well, there's one ten and a half left. Well, we were gonna sell it on eBay. I was like, no, 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 no. Oh, I was like, God. I'm, I'm taking it. And, and I ended up getting walking out of the store with the pair. Uh, and then I played in them every, every day for the next you know year and a half or however long. And I still have that pair. And there's absolutely destroyed because I played basketball in them for a year and a half and they're all yellow with from sweat and, and all that. But that was the first pair of Jordans I ever owned. Um, I had my, my career game and then I scored 53 points in the B league championship game in, uh, 2001 or something. I don't know. Uh, you know, I hit 15 threes in a, in a game. Uh, you know, it was a good, it was a good game, but, uh, Poor competition, um, yeah. <laughs> but um, but you know that was the first first pair of shoes that I ever bought myself, and the first pair you know Jordans, and it was I never spent that, And so and that was it, right, to to start that and, and and go down that path. It's um yeah, and I still have that. I still have, by the way, all the shoes that that I had before that that my mom would buy me one pair of shoes a year, but there were just no no Jordans.
0: Yeah, well, I was going to ask if someone were to walk through your your sneaker closet, however you have it set up at your house, like. I mean, do you have the Jordan 11 Concords, Jordan 5 Grapes? Like, are there, like, well, if someone was touring your house, your sneaker collection, what would you, like, proudly exhibit as, like, the most emotionally proud ones that you have, you know?
1: Yeah, well, I, you know, I just moved to to Austin. Um, in Detroit, I had built this really amazing sneaker room um, when we bought the house in Detroit. Um, you know, this was before we even launched StockX, so, um, you know, it was a relatively... Modest house, and um, but I there was this one room that was above my garage, and the garage was a two car garage, so that's like kind of the size of the room, and um, and it had carpet and drywall, and so I basically had shelves built the entire way around, and this beautiful, I mean it looks like a it looks like a, it's better than a you know it looks like a boutique, there's lights and this whole thing, I mean I spent a massively disproportionate amount of my disposable income to build yeah. a sneaker wall. Because the sneaker room, because that's all I ever really wanted was to have the sneaker room, and so they were all displayed. I mean, I have about I don't know, maybe about four hundred pairs at the time, you know, a little bit less, um, and they were all displayed in and you know in sections. It's like here's the Jordans, and here's the Nike, you know, here's the Nike running, and here's Nike basketball, and here's Adidas, and et cetera, et cetera. But you know, the the one pair that's probably you know if you if I'm running into the house to grab one pair. Yeah. Um, it's probably the uh, Carhartt Fours, the Eminem okay. Carhartt Fours, and and the reason why is because um, Eminem and Paul gave me um, my pair. Oh, wow! Um, because uh, those guys were investors in StockX in the very first round, and so I've only worn them a handful of times. Usually, it's on stage, you know, and and making some sort of point um, about fifteen thousand dollars shoes. Um, obviously, it doesn't hurt that they're fifteen thousand dollars shoes, but just the kind of like backstory to that, the fact that you know, that those guys gave him yeah, to man. me. I mean, I was at Paul's office in New York and he, when he gave him to me and I immediately took him out of the box and put him on as it's, you know, say like, look, I'm, you know, this, I'm never selling these, the, you know, just the, you know, the, the history of that relationship, um, is, uh, was the point of that. So that's, you yeah, know, that's probably the most important shoe.
0: That's a beautiful story. I mean, like, how about from the card side of things? I mean, I know you're from Philadelphia, like when it comes to the The things that you were collecting from a card perspective like it sounds like you're a big basketball fan what was the stuff you're collecting when you were younger and also i mean i don't know if you have like a card closet as well to display what you care about but like what what's the story there yeah
1: well so anyway now that i'm Austin, i have to build a new shoe wall (laughs) and uh it's going to take much longer and i'm uh i'm essentially going to build a like a new office that'll be somewhere like a combination between footlocker and like a bank vault right because okay. <laughs> you know trading cards you know it's not it's not as easy to display them but you need more security and and everything around them um yeah i mean you know uh even though i'm way more of a basketball fan than baseball you know back then it was all baseball cards and um and baseball was just cooler than it was i guess now uh to some extent so most of my cards were baseball cards um, and I collected what most you know, 10-year-old kids collected in, in 1988, uh, which was junk wax era stuff. And then in 1989, Ken Griffey Jr. and 89 Upper Deck and, and that changed everything for all of us. So that card is an important part of my, um, my childhood and even my life now. I, I built a, a desk um, at, when I was at StockX and I still have the desk, basically the, the top of the desk is all, like, glass, and then it's all um, 89 Upper Deck Ken Griffey Jr.'s. And it, really? and it holds 280 cards in there. Um, and I, you can, like, swap them out or whatever, stuff like that. But that was, like, you know, as I was getting back into trading cards, I built that desk as sort of, like, a, you know, a shrine to that card in that that time in, in my life. But, yeah, it was all baseball then, except for um, – it was all baseball but and, and, and all sort of new cards, like everyone else did, except for some reason – I don't even know why I got really into Willie Mays. And so I basically had all the normal cards that everyone else had all the junk wax stuff. And then I was collecting Willie Mays. And so I, you know, had this really great collection of, I don't know, 2025 20, different Willie Mays, including 1952 tops, the Willie Mays rookie, um, that my parents gave me at that was my bar mitzvah present from my parents was a, a Willie Mays, you know, 52 tops. So um, yeah, pretty like, I don't know, weird, interesting thing. Um, And so, as you might imagine, you know, now, all the other stuff is worthless, but, you know, those maze are are worth some money.
0: Yeah. Well, one thing I've heard you say in other interviews is that, you know, you've collected a decent amount of, like, non-sports cards. Like, I think I heard a story about how you have a big Jimi Hendrix collection, Kim Kardashian. I know, like, And and that overall topic of like, what is the potential of non-sports cards? I something I find fascinating, but how, how did that, that happen? Like both the Hendrix, the Kardashian, and just what's your take on the non-sports cards idea?
1: Yeah. I mean, I think this is maybe the biggest area of growth that we'll see in the trading card industry over the next five years is, you know, if you think about sports and sports cards, um, you know, athletes are obviously a huge part of, of culture in our life, but they're not the only part. Like we we did a quick, some quick research and we looked at like whatever, I think it was either the last year or the year before is timed like top 100 people. And there were only two athletes in there, right? There's 98 other people that are important, you know, so... Um, you know, when you look at whether it's Kim Kardashian and you can say whatever you want about her or or Jimi Hendrix or or Pharrell or, or any like these people are as iconic and as important in culture in our lives as any athlete ever. And they have a fan base as rabid and as um, passionate as as any athlete ever. Um, and so I think it's just a function of, um, you know, there's never really been a great. Uh, it's harder to make trading cards if you go to like how cards are made, because. If for, for sports cards, you don't have to go and get each person in the NBA signed up. You get a, a license from the league and the NBA Players Association. You can make cards. Nothing like that exists for, for culture, for life. So any of those cards have to be a lot of one-off deals. And so it's just more, more scatter um, in, uh, in, in the product. But there exists some great product that's out there. And I'm going to guess that people are going to make more product. And historically, if you look, what happened was in the 60s and 70s, there was a couple of these Dutch companies uh, that I assumed had no actual license to do what they did, but made a whole lot of cards for um, um, uh, rock stars and musicians uh, and some actors. And so there's these really just extraordinary cards of Bob Dylan and and Jimi Hendrix and and Led Zeppelin and uh, and then you go back a little earlier and there's like Elvis Presley and Paul Newman and uh, you know and I think that stuff first of all is. Um, first of all, it's just so cool, um, but also it's very like pop pop counts are are nothing, um, and those people are as important as any athlete. So I, I think they're going to be extraordinarily valuable. And you know, I I'm fully transparent in my you know collection. Like I, I think I've, I have to have, if not the largest, one of the largest Jimi Hendrix collections because I know how much I have and I know what the pop report yeah, is like it, yeah. for you know his rookie card is is in 68 there's like three cards in 68 like three cards in 69 and then a couple others a couple years later and i and I, I just basically been buying every one i possibly can um because it's like it's Jimi hendrix like he's like the mickey mantle of of music right like he's gonna you know um and so you know there's a there's a bob marley card there's or there's two bob marley cards in 1978 i think that card is you know becomes as important as as any sports card ever um and so uh what we've seen recently like that you mentioned we've talked about kim kardashian that was that was kind of a a random thing in 2009 upper deck made a set that was if you look now almost all like d-list celebrities you wouldn't even recognize most of these people in there and upper deck had them autograph it on card and they made a die cut number to 50 of the same card so i was buying every one of those kim kardashian cards for for years now, and you know, two years ago, I was paying a couple hundred bucks a piece. Now, you know, it's like a couple thousand dollars a piece. But like, I think the first time that Kim looks at, you know, someone gives her that card and she looks at it, and it's like, oh, how cool, my autographed rookie card, and like puts it on Instagram. Like, I think that's a fifty thousand dollar card or whatever. Like, it's you know, is, is there anybody that that's more influential in culture right now than Kim? Like, maybe not, right? So. I just I, I just think it, it, it just comes back to like trading cards are about fandom. They're about, you know, a historical record of, of the people that were important in some walk of life at some period of time, right? In sports, it's who was important in the twenty eighteen rookies, it's Luka Doncic and Trey Young, right? In in you know, so it, it's the same thing and, and I'm massively uh, optimistic and and um, and bullish on that. And honestly, if I just had if I, if I had more you know money and time i would buy every non-sport card i could possibly find but at some point you gotta you know you gotta some point you gotta buy sneakers and, and hats and posters too so
0: yeah uh well i think this might be a good kind of segue into like some of the recent work you've done like specifically your white paper trading cards are cool again which is an incredible 50 page analysis of the trading card industry your predictions for the future historical analysis analogs with the sneaker industry which i think is fascinating and obviously we, we can't go th- through every single page of that maybe maybe another podcast but um i one thing i really wanted to pick up on is get your thoughts on the whole influencer angle because one of the things you said uh is that one of the reasons why sneakers have become such a cultural phenomenon versus five years ago is because of people like the holy trifecta of like travis scott kanye and virgil rest in peace but tragic yeah that happened recently um if you want to say anything like that but if you think about the, an analogs for the card industry, I, I don't know, like, is Logan Paul, Gary Vee, and Steve Aoki the closest thing to that? And and maybe there's nothing at the exact level, but how do you think that'll evolve over the next few years? Because I, I remember one of the other stats that I think you had, uh, maybe you've said this, maybe this is in the white paper, maybe something you've, you've you've said before, but I think you were saying that StockX became like four to six times larger than what you thought the entire sneaker industry was going going to be. Uh, and if you think about people undervaluing cards and one of the triggers for that being more and more influential people creating like content, like content marketing, if you will, for the card industry in general. Like, how do you think that will evolve uh, as time goes on?
1: Yeah. It, um, you know, you, you're hitting on what I mean, the, the the white paper is called Trading Cards Are Cool Again. And it's at www.tradingcardsarecoolagain.com. Right. And the only thing that's on the site. And It's funny when somebody, you know, every now and then you see in the comments, someone says trading cards have always been cool. Like, you know, you don't know what you're talking about or something. They're missing the point or they clearly haven't read the article, which is fine. I mean, it's only 53 pages. Um, is the reason it's called trading cards are cool. Again, is it's a statement to the rest of the world that trading cards are, are culturally relevant trading cards. And the, the people that are on trading cards and care about trading cards are the people that are, are making culture today right uh, you know steve and, and and logan paul and gary like these guys are are are, are forming culture outside of trading cards and they yeah. just happen to also be trading card collectors and so it, and a lot of it is about is generational because you know again back to you know i'm 43 like you have this almost any American male, anywhere near my age, had some association with trading cards when they were a kid. And but now we're all of the age where we have disposable income, where um, and we can go back and buy that Michael Jordan we couldn't afford when we were twelve. But we're also the generation that is now creating culture. We're the ones that are making decisions for big companies, or we're the ones who are publishing books, or we're the ones that that have you know like like Steve, who are the biggest DJs in the world. Like it's our generation that that are doing that, and so. Um, it's in, but, and then it's important that the people that are, are creating culture, to get them to care about the things that, that matter, they need to also be creating it. You can't, um, and, and this is for sneakers, it was really around the collaborations, right? It was one thing to, to see you know, uh, Drake a pair of Jordans and great, like Drake's wearing Jordans, that's cool. But once Drake started making OVO Jordans, well, then he cares about Jordans way more than he did before, and you know, just to use him as an example, but like that's why collaborations matter so much. It's it's not that you're selling a product that's an OVO product now you get to sell that to Drake fans. Sure, that's important, but the fact that Drake cares more about sneakers and more about Jordans means that, right? That that's what will lead to everything. And so I think that you know the fact that Aoki has a card that he made with Tops. And Gary had a card that he made with tops. And Logan Paul has been, you know, wearing Charizard cards to like those things all matter because they're engaging and they are they're creating things in the trading card space, right? Cultural creators need to to create. And so, you know, it's again it's one thing to just give somebody cards or, or, or invite, you know, post Malone was doing a break with StockX, and yeah. that's that's fine in the abstract, but he actually collects magic cards. So therefore, he cares about you know magic more. It's it's way different, and so I think that I just as we get to this next phase of of cards and and in full transparency, how I've been thinking about this with regard to to fanatics trading cards and what we might do there. Um, I think like you ask yourself, how do you get to a point that the people that create culture care more about cards, and what can you allow them to create in the space? And that's one of the things I love about trading cards. The 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 creative aspect is almost infinite the number of things you could put in a card the number of things you can make cards out of um you know both it's just it's frankly it's it's infinite so like trading cards being cool again and by the way it's a declarative statement that um i don't think is true yet um i don't think they are fully integrated in culture yet but i'm kind of saying where i think that this is going um you know when they are when they are genuinely integrated in culture then the trading art industry is going to be you know, 50X what it is today. The whole industry will 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 be there. And that's what happened with sneakers and that's what happened with StockX, of StockX being today about four times bigger than the entire resale sneaker market was when we started. It's because, you know, when we started StockX, Kanye hadn't gone to Adidas, Virgil hadn't, you know, made a single shoe with Nike and, and hadn't been at Louis Vuitton. Travis was barely on the charts, let alone making shoes. And today those three guys account for, some extraordinary amount of the dollars in the sneaker market, right? Because their sneakers became truly part of, of culture. And that's, you know, once that happens, there is no like modeling and projections for how big the market can be. It's so much bigger than you could possibly imagine. And by the way, like that's what I told Ruben when we met was like, look, because he and, and almost every uh, person I've met at that level and, and billionaires and, and very successful business people, they're, they're all about the numbers, they're all about the TAM, they're how big, like, okay, how big can that be, how big can that be, how big can that be, and finally, I was just like, Michael, I was like, I don't know, but it's really fucking big, man, and it's way bigger than you think it is, and it will be way bigger than you think it is, because once it it crosses into the cultural aspect, there's no way to model, like, how big it could be, like, could you imagine if there's somebody that had the, the cultural influence of just one of those three people, Connie, Virgil, or Travis, and had that impact hit cards, like, it would look like Gary, Logan, Steve times like 100, right? So that's where we're sitting on. and I think we're sitting on the precipice of that. And we just don't know how it will come to fruition. But I think it will. And that's the declarative statement of like trading cards are cool again.
0: Yeah, And and I think it's brilliant that you come in with this perspective that comes from the the sneaker world, but you've obviously been a card collector for so long. So you can see the analogs between those two industries that most people don't have that experience. Amber, I mean, like one of the other things you were saying, well, I mean, apart from the influencer topic, I mean, there's things you can learn from how sneakers approach distribution, limited releases, how they like supply and demand. And another thing too, Amber, at the end of your white paper, you compared like the the potential upside, the, the TAM of cards versus sneakers. And then one of the things you mentioned is that compared to a sneaker, which, you know, nineteen eighty five Jordan ones will like dissolve or like fall apart eventually. Right. But a uh, Babe Ruth from nineteen eighteen, if preserved well, won't. Like right. I remember there are a few other things that you said like that made cards like the ultimate sort of collectible more than more than sneakers, more than NFTs, because of all these like elements about cards specifically.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It it, it it's really true, right? Um sneakers and I mean obviously I, I love sneakers and i still buy sneakers and i'm not getting rid of them but they're not long term investments you know it, it, for years reporters would ask me qu- some question like what's the best sneaker to invest in or whatever and i'd be like you shouldn't invest in sneakers i'm like that you know and like they'd be like oh uh this interview is <laughs> over i was like okay um is um cuz they're still just rubber and leather and glue and and they'll they'll fall apart even if they're preserved amazingly right they'll I, Trading cards, however, are true investable assets. There is no alternative purpose for it and preserve right, they'll, they'll last forever. And because there's no there's no variance in that, you have this standardized asset that is preserved and we, we have standardized the condition, we know what it is. Grading is what essentially changed trading cards from being memorabilia, being a collectible to being an asset. Um, and so, yeah, and, and I think uh, on this point, I think what we're gonna see is a whole financial services industry pop up around cards? We've already seen it. Like there already are a couple fun, alt created a fund. There's another wax fund I know about. You're obviously seeing the fractional with Rally and Collectible and Otis and those guys. Um, Dibs doing a, a version of that with NFTs. Like I just think that the financial services around trading cards. Like I, I think in five years, like you know Vanguard has a trading card desk or whatever, right? Like I, and it's because trading cards are true investable assets, but. They actually, they're also a collectible. They're also a consumer good, and that's what makes them this like unique unicorn product that I don't think any of the others it hit right. And and trading cards basically hit four industries, four categories, right? It's consumer good. It's financial asset. Uh, it's it's cultural relic. We've talked about culture, and then it's gambling. It's a it's it's gaming. It's gambling, and we can you know we can you know sort of. uh, Smooth it over if we want, but like, look, opening a pack of cards is straight gambling. You're paying a certain amount. You don't know what you're gonna get. You're trying to pull, you know, a big card, and if you don't pull a big card, you're basically gonna lose money. But if you do, you're gonna win money, and 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 that and that's what it is. Um, and so, the fact that trading cards are sort of equal parts, all four of those, is extraordinary. I don't think any other product category hits them and what it does is it gives so much opportunity for growth. Every business model, every business opportunity, every business partner in all four of those industries is is on the table for how this industry grows and expands and that's just like frankly an, an extraordinary exciting, you know, situation and opportunity to be in.
0: You no, know, this this is an incredible opportunity for 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 Fanatics right now, for everyone. It's such an exciting time. Now um, before we close, Josh, I'd love to hear your thoughts on, I mean, just to elaborate more on this like last topic about alternative assets and investments that someone who like, particularly millennials, I guess from your generation, Gen Z even, they're not looking to necessarily like mutual funds or bonds or stocks. They're looking to things right. like NFTs, sneakers, trading cards, uh, meme stocks, things like that. I'd love to get your take on, I guess, specifically... I mean, NFTs have so much relevance to trading cards. You think about like Trevor Lawrence launching like NFTs side by side with his trading cards this year. I think that'll happen for pretty much every athlete as time goes on. Lamel Ball has his own NFTs. A lot of NBA teams are launching NFTs right now, putting that on top of like NBA Top Shot, NFL's own version, all that stuff. Let's get your comments on NFTs specifically. And then mm-hmm. the broader sort of topic of alternative investments and what you see as the reason behind why people who are like in your generation, millennials, Gen Z, looking at this kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, like I mean, NFTs are, are are real. They're here to stay. They're not going anywhere. They're gonna be, you know, a, a part of our lives for for the for the rest of our lives. Um, you know, but it's it's the wild wild west. Um, it's it's not easy to to know what's going on. It takes education. It takes research. Um, it's not as easy as just you know going and buying a, a bored ape. Although you can do that. Um, one of the things that I've heard um gary and some of the other kind of like crypto um ogs preaching a lot that i feel like i should say all the time now is um is don't don't invest what you can't afford to lose in in nfts like it's not all up and to the right a lot of these projects will uh end badly or or at least won't be great great returns but but some of them will be all-time returns and um and i think that's that's great um i'm really interested in the business uses of nfts um and spending a lot of time thinking about it and and working with people um on the trading card business now for us which is um you know tops and panini make nft cards already um and so i'm sure we'll continue that in some fashion but what's way more interesting is can we leverage nfts to Um, facilitate a better consumer experience in in how you buy cards, how you sell cards, how you store cards, um, how you provide access to cards, you know, vFriends, Gary's uh, NFT project, a lot of that is about access, it's about access to him, it's about access to to, uh, gifts, it's about access to, and, um, and, you know, I think his uh, high level premises is, or high level uh, thesis is that, everybody in the world will interact with nfts in five years or or 10 years because all tickets will be nfts and most people buy tickets to something i think that's a pretty a pretty rational uh thought and so um i'm i'm all about i think in a in another world if if michael and i didn't get the licenses if if i didn't create a business and trading cards i don't know maybe i'd try to like day trade nfts i think there's something (laughs) super interesting there but it, it takes real work to, to be in it and do the research and, and try to try to do that, which um which is interesting. So I don't know. I like it.
0: No, totally. And that's that's actually one thing that, you know, our mission as New Street is to educate and inform people about sneakers, trading cards, NFTs and what that world is because it is just becoming more and more important. These are like immature markets, but they're not going away. They're just getting stronger and particularly for younger people, it's it's the big thing. Uh now, Josh, I know we're running out of time here. So I mean, love to just get two last questions out of you sure one where can people find you twitter linkedin tradingcardsarecool.com whatever and then two i guess any last thoughts to leave with the audience but maybe summarizing the excitement of the things we've talked about for the last hour
1: yeah i mean um just josh luber at instagram um at some point soon the trading card businesses that we run will will have all their own uh social handles but um you know that's what's you know a, a lot of people want to hear about um about fanatics trading cards and, and that stuff. But, you know, we don't actually run those, those businesses yet. And, and we will at some point soon at that point, there'll be a whole lot more to talk about on that side. But, you know, I guess just as a final um, sort of parting thought, um, particularly for those that um, don't uh, want to take the time to read 53 pages um, of, uh, of white paper, which is totally fine, um, is that, you know, I think that the really, you know, we, we touched on the trading cards are cool again and what that means, but there's a, there's a big section in there, uh, in the paper, um, about, um, supply and demand and how you grow the trading card industry, um, with the, um, uh, with the goal of both growing the industry and maintaining the long-term value of the cards. And, um, I just I think that that's you know we didn't go deep on it and that's fine but like that's a really important part of my personal philosophy on this and what I'm gonna try to carry forward as we as we move into to uh, managing those uh, sports cards which is that we should be erring on the side of of creating long term value and that's the greatest way to grow the whole industry and and we've talked a lot about the opportunity for growth that's there in the trading card industry and a hundred percent it is. Um, but at the same time, um, like we need to maintain trading cards as 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 valuable assets and as uh, and make sure that even though there is a gambling aspect to it, that more often than not, you know, people don't feel like they're walking out of the casino broke. Right. That they're they're actually you know participating. In it. So that'll be our goal as we get into it. But, you know, we have uh, we have a long way to go before we even even start that. So hopefully we can get there as, as soon as we can. So awesome. thanks for
0: having me. Thanks for listening to New Street X. You can learn more about Josh in the show notes and learn more about New Street at newstreet.com. Make sure you follow, like, and subscribe.